Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the Andrew Special. Woo woo! This is Andrew. Andrew. <laughs> Andrew, what? Well, if you were a sandwich, <laughs> what would you be? I can't think. I can't stop thinking about this. I see it on a menu at like Gandalfo's or something. I can see the text Andrew Special, but I don't know what's on it. Well, I once described myself to a friend as a peanut butter tuna sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds disgusting. <laughs> it's kind of like that episode of The Office where Michael's like, I once had a dream that I ate a peanut butter and tuna sandwich, and it was delicious. <laughs> and I woke up, and I made it, and it was disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds kind of like my life. <laughs> no, that... Wow, yeah. Enjoy the club. <laughs> no, I don't know. I have, I think uh, I have like left brainy friends who think I'm a crazy right brainy guy, and I have right brainy friends who think I'm kind of a crazy left brainer. And yeah. So I was trying to explain to my friend how two two different things could fit together and it came out as peanut butter tuna sandwich but i i could probably think of something that's more delicious sounding for the, the <laughs> listeners who want a delicious sounding sandwich but we'll do that another time perfect yeah i'm excited to to hear da, 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 da. yeah i'm excited to hear that it's amazing so um why why did you so i we i kind of pitched this idea to andrew to co-host uh, an episode once a month kind of thing why on earth did you say yes to this oh i'm a sucker for punishment i guess no seriously <laughs> you're a fun guy to talk to and the subject matter is endlessly interesting to me and i i feel like i'm coming to early music specifically but music in general as a um as just a person who loves it i don't i'm not coming laden with you know multiple phds in in magical subtopics i'm just an explorer and i'm constantly foraging and sort of feeding my own creativity by studying what interests me and this is this is my jam i just love it yeah yeah and i think that that is makes for a really interesting dynamic because I, I feel like I'm the same way in terms of early music. You know, having a master's in choral conducting doesn't necessarily uh, qualify you to be considered an expert in anything but arm waving. Um, but, but so then the early music thing kind of came on its own too. So I think it's cool to talk about it from the perspective of an academic and like a lay person hobbyist simultaneously. It's like what you said, the left brain, right brain together. It's kind of that same concept. So I think this is, that's why it, the, the the concept was really intriguing to me at first too, so. Yeah, well, one of my favorite poets, a guy named Wendell Berry, um, refers to himself as an amateur poet. Oh, wow. Because the, you know, the root of that uh, of the word or the origin of the word is somebody who loves a lover of poetry and i, I feel like mm. man, i'm an amateur musician we have sort of an expertise obsessed culture yeah I think some people feel like that you have to have all sorts of credentials to enter a conversation and i don't think that's helpful and so i'm i'm an amateur yeah. um in all the hopefully in in all the right ways and I'm just chasing my curiosities, and I think it's fun to talk about those curiosities along the way. Yeah, me too. Yeah, this is awesome. So tell us br just briefly about uh, our guest today that we're going to have on. Oh, yeah. I am so excited to um, chat with Philip Lasser. So um, the, the dry, like, website bio. Yeah. <laughs> If you if you were reading his website, I mean, you could <laughs> and you can, yeah. Uh, but it would go something like this: grew up in New York, talented young musician, 
has the opportunity as a teenager to go um, study in Nadia Boulanger's summer program just just as she is um, approaching the end of her life. Um, he's stunned by the difference between the conservatory tradition there, the mentoring tradition, and what he had experienced in the U.S., came back, um, took degrees at Harvard, at Columbia, and ultimately at Juilliard, and then started teaching at Juilliard. And that's sort of like a professional scaffolding, but the, his true interest was um, in this mentorship-based transmission of uh, musical thought. Yeah. And the, kind, the kind of thing that um, he, he observed with Boulanger, but especially with her um, sort of right-hand man, Narcisse Bonnet. And uh, I met him in 2017 when I went to study at the summer program that he founded it to, to wow. sort of preserve and build on that tradition. So I spent the summer of 2017 and 2018 with him studying counterpoint and harmony and wow. then studied privately for several years since then with him. And he's, he's both a, um, a close friend and a mentor and a terrific human being and has a lot of insights into what music is and how it works. Oh, I'm super pumped. I am super psyched. I can hear it in your voice, Cameron. <laughs> he says through through tired voice <laughs> i can't tell if that was sarcastic had, or not <laughs> no, 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 no. i'm 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 speaking admiringly of the tone of your voice since oh I, good I good three hours of sleep last night and so <laughs> i feel like i'm floating right now yeah that's amazing i think that's what drugs are like i hear so i hear <laughs> my quick side story my friend my brother's best friend michael would always just come in random when we were roommates at college be like hi my name is michael and i'm super psyched and so that's the way i feel right now my name is cameron and i'm super psyched so let's go and i'm perpetually exhausted we're gonna be, we're gonna be a team. <laughs> this is a great team we balance see yeah finding our feng shui okay let's go now to our interview with philip Woo! so philip you've been teaching at juilliard you've been leading the ema program in Paris for years and years, and certainly you've run into what we like to call early music. What is it about early music to your ears? What is it that keeps it feeling fresh, even you know now hundreds of years since that moment? Hmm. Early music is a big, nonetheless a fairly large swath of time, uh, but in general I would say it's purity of sound, the focus on the purity of interval, uh, the simplicity of counterpoint between voices, uh, that we find there's, a, there's an intrinsic pleasure that our ears get from hearing simplicity in all of its beauty. And it's not that music got more complicated later, but that there is a sense of a focus on the purity of line, purity of melody per se, and purity of counterpoint in early music, which I think uh, was primarily focused by composers. That's what they were interested in. That was their language, was a simple conception of purity. Purity is such an old concept. I mean, it's a Greek concept uh, where First, they related intervals to purity, so fifths were pure, uh, fourths were less pure than fifths based on ratios and so on. Uh, and, and, it, and I think that fed into, uh, in the early music periods, uh, to a study of how sound could be dosed as more or less pure. So thirds and sixths, which are pleasing to us, uh, are more complex both ratiotically and also by frequency uh, so they become more complicated and and to sort of start balancing between uh, intervals that are rich and full of uh, potential and pure intervals that are more restful more zen <laughs> more clean uh, yes well I you know I, I heard David Byrne from the Talking Heads giving a talk about um, uh, architecture 
and the development of harmony and something that you're saying about purity of sound reminds me also of the reverberant spaces that a lot of the singing was happening in. Um, in fact, I was I went to hear Voce Eight in Connecticut um, a little while back, and they opened their concert with a Purcell number, and you know eight singers in one end of this uh, you know Episcopal church with these tall, glorious ceilings, and it was crisp and it was loud and it was enveloping and it was mm -hmm. you know it's a very sensual experience. You just feel feel it. And it was stunning, and and it was all fifths and thirds, you know, you know what I mean. But uh, but by by comparison, later in their program, uh, they did some music uh, that was more chromatic. They did music that was jazz harmony based, and they did it flawlessly. But it was interesting to feel the volume of the sound just decrease in the space. There were there faster moving lines, certainly that contributed to it, but the harmonies didn't just uh, envelop you in that zen. Well, I mean, what you said is a, is a fascinating comment and completely accurate because I, I would say early music in general was designed to be sung in churches and basilicas and in monasteries with very reverberant rooms. Uh, and I would argue that the architecture of the music matched the architecture of the building. Uh, and so when you hear uh, a, a, a choir work uh, in an er of an early period, you're actually hearing architecture in sound that is matching the architecture in which it was uh, designed to be sung. Uh, and so when you get 19th century or chromatic or jazz or things like that much later that are not designed to be sung in basilicas and, and, and uh, reverberant rooms, the oversaturation of chromatics uh, in fact diminish the power of the room. And so, yeah, and another reason why I think we s so love uh, early music and the purity of early music and the simplicity of it is that it matches the architecture of the room in which it was designed. Yeah. To be, to be and, and, and for me, the interesting thing as an educator is to see how like, and that all of what you're saying makes complete sense of why there's so many schools that don't really do it except for, you know, the obligatory dead guy on the program for festival so we can get those points and then move on but but i think that you know there are ways to to help give those experiences to students of any level without necessarily having to be in those spaces of hey let's go to a parking garage or something let's do a field trip to a parking garage and just just so they can have that sort of aesthetic because there's something so special too about not not just the architecture of of the building, but when you talk about the ratios of the architecture of the music, what it really feels like to sing not accompanied by those keyboard instruments that are equally tempered, when, 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 when singers, when you get that sensation of singing in just intonation and, and what that would have felt like to basically be doing that all the time, so to speak, it, right. it changes the experience uh, 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 in another area and another aspect. You know, I had that experience uh, both ways. When I was in high school, I remember singing O Manu Mysterium, the Victoria. Yeah. And we just did that for Christmas. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's evergreen, you know, that that's a greatest hit uh, right there. Um, but singing it in the choir room, okay singing it in our high school auditorium moderately okay but the <laughs> but you really need a you need a, a choir shell and you need you just hope that some of the sound that you're putting out there is going to come back to you uh right. really oh. really designed for show tune um <laughs> but then last year i walked into the lady chapel at ely cathedral in yeah. the uk and sarah mcdonald uh, magical, marvelous con uh, choral director walked me in there and she said, well, it has something like this 12 second decay. And sure enough, I could I could sing uh, the beginning of Talus, If You Love Me in there in harmony with myself because mm -hmm. I was reverberating for so long that I, I was supplying 
uh, a complete harmony and it's, yeah. it's a transforming experience. I mean, you, you vibrate differently in an yeah. environment like that. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that <clears throat> if it's like having a nine foot Steinway instead of an upright or a spinet uh, piano, uh, you know, obviously it's going to sound better in that sense, but you still get a lot of pleasure. In fact, I like to compose not on nine foot Steinways when I write uh, because I like to write. It's, it's in the ear and in the mind. And I think students, choir, choral singers, uh, direct pleasure from the purity of interval even if uh, they're not in a reverberant space uh, from that point of view and the issue of just intonation as you mentioned creates the concept of enharmonicity which uh, is the ultimate in fact I always say that nothing is new you know no matter how far you go nothing is new uh, I show in my counterpoint classes a an 11th century Salve Regina um, uh, Gregorian chant, single single line, so-called single line, right, right. Uh, and because of the resonances, uh, like the the idea of being sung in a basilica with long echo, um, y there are minor ninth chords. In fact, I'll tell, I'll, I'll play you the one of the chords is, <laughs> uh, and and I always ask my students, you don't think that in the 11th century they heard a minor seventh when they sang that <laughs> you yeah. know in other words the the reverberant room is a, is building uh the the harmony which then wc does <laughs> uh and there's no difference and so to say for example that there is monophony as opposed to polyphony is a false narrative that's not true mm -hmm. uh, and so therefore then you bring in multiple voices simultaneously and you can sense from let's say Machot growing uh, I, I called I think there's a period and I'll state it for the record here that yeah. no history book has talked about uh, they go from monophony to polyphony uh, but I, that's a big mistake. Uh, there's a big, there's a big gap of time between so-called monophonic music and so-called polyphonic music. Uh, and about 1300, uh, you see what I call a period, and it's my name, I'm copywriting this one, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, but uh, I, I call the period multiple monophonics. Uh, because you can see in my show, there are these, since he's thinking tetrachordally per voice, and you also see that they're different languages, which means that he's not trying to make the text all that clear, since sometimes, as I said, there are two to three languages in one motet. Uh, so it's not as if you're really going to hear the, the, the words the way we think of it in, in later period. Uh, and the point is that uh, there are lots of little quirky dissonances between voices because they had not yet developed into this idea of how to gel two voices together and make them work in polyphony. So when polyphony comes up, and that's much later, I mean, I would say you have to be in the uh, 15th century to really get a reliable sense that intervals voice by voice are consistently kept so that we hear thirds and, and, and there's a logic to how those vertical intervals, so to speak, are working one after another. Uh, and that period is a fascinating period of where you see the notion of taking the polyphony of monophony, just as I said, the minor seventh chord being built out of resonance uh, and spilling it into simultaneous voices. And right, then right. codifying that, if I could just finish, gel that in to the what we traditionally think of Palestrina style polyphony, uh, and and the all those pleasures are all the same, whether you sing it solo or you ultimately sing it with multiple voices, uh, it's all the same. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, struck me when um, I was perusing the Cambridge History of Western Music Theory. I'm not going to claim to have read all three vertical inches of these pages, um, but we're in a really different situation now than uh, our counterpoints, our counterparts were back then, because we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years worth of stuff in our ears already. 
and um, they had they had so much to to figure out at a really fundamental level. I mean, we we have convenient words like higher and lower, uh, and we have these mental images that a a a higher frequency pitch is above. I mean, what it, that's kind of an abstraction, and what what I keep thinking about when I ask myself this question, what is, what is it about early music? I guess that it's not so much that it's early, uh, but it's primal. They, when you're talking about the, the evolution of monophony through multiple monophony to polyphony, they were having to figure so much out. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, and, no, yeah, sorry. I just think that it's the, when, when you talk about that, those, those frequencies lock in your ear and it, it does, your ears get super happy and tingly. And there's something that resonates even in your body that, that it's a full body experience when certain sound frequencies line up. And so I think that for me, that's why, that's why teaching it and trying to find a way to teach it without a piano, you know, even if you have to teach by rote, you know, repeat this line, but really like feel that in your bones. And then you, you, seeing it in a space where, like you mentioned, you can feel that multiple monophony <laughs> sensation happening with yourself and you're just, whoa, you know, and I think that's what that primal instinct to always seeing something simple like that mm. is what really builds every other time period, even even something as complex, quote unquote complex, as Mahler and, and, and like the late romantics, romanticists that were expanding chromatic like it's still built on those same exact things they're just Absolutely. trying to move quickly or, or or create more complex vertical structures but it's the same concept of what's going to make the ears do that you know and perk up a little bit absolutely two two things i would say in line with what you just said first of all the idea that nothing is ever new uh when you hear you know a straussian progression that goes so modern. Uh, well, I'm sorry, every one of those pitches is a modal pitch, you know, so you have the Phrygian 6, right, uh, the Lydian 4, uh, and those existed in the 9th century, the 11th century, the 12th century. Now, obviously, I'm not saying that they had uh, the so-called Swiss augmented 6 chord there, uh, but, but all of the parts of that chord are built from pre-existing modal ideas. Uh, and so, yes, I mean, ultimately there's a primal aspect to early music, uh, as Andrew was saying, <clears throat> they were kind of discovering it uh, as it was going. And once it, in a sense, modality is discovered and all the intervals that are pleasing and not pleasing uh, uh, are figured out, I don't think music ever changed. I, I also come back to the sim simplistic, perhaps, but somewhat accurate statement that music either has dissonance or consonance. That's it. You know, so we can throw the diatribe of the 20th century and what is modernity and so on out the window when you say, you know, we had had a lot of tertian sonorities and a lot of fifths and thirds and sixths for, for generations. Let's try to replace it with nothing but sevenths, ninths, and seconds, you know, and tritones. And it's like, well, you know, first of all, there are plenty of tritones, even in Machot, and there are plenty of false relations and minor seconds and, and so on. It's the dosages of those dissonances to the consonants. There I will make a stylistic judgment to suggest that the beauty of early music is that it has a, it has a balanced uh, approach to creating dissonance and then resolving that distance to something that is viscerally pleasing. Uh, and, you know, then you can say, oh, well, you know, because I know there are composers who say, oh, well, you know, that's just old, old stuff. Uh, I love, a, you know, dissonance and so on. I, I think that's, that's intellectual, but it's not physical. It's not true physically. Right, right. I have a question then. So, Philip, when you're saying that uh, music has never changed, I, uh, at one level, I'm with it, but at another level, I bet that more than a few listeners would say, "Well, okay, it sounds like a few things changed. Few things changed all, along the way." And so, the story I'm telling myself is the this this idea of counterpoint as 
choreography of sound that's evergreen um, but but what does change over the centuries you're, you're talking about dosage of dissonance no. what what is it that leads us from maybe what's kind of like a, a pure <clears throat> contrapuntal way of hearing and thinking uh from one interval to the next interval in a in a you know in a monophonic world what's the right word uh through, yeah so so what does change over time well first of all i you know it depends on how you want to define what changes right i say yeah. that it's it's old friends in new clothes and that's that's the way i'd like to put it uh so again the the German augmented six chord or the Swiss six is nothing but an assembly of modal pitches that have existed forever. Uh, and so in that sense, it's a, it is new because in the 13th century, you wouldn't see them all lined up together. Uh, also, there is something new, which is the progressive growth of abstract music, because let's not forget that most of early music is choral and vocal. And therefore, there is the umbilical cord, as I call it, of text. Text is incredibly powerful and beautiful to link us to physical sound through words. And uh, But nonetheless, there is a less of an abstraction of sound in the early music world. Uh, I think it's extremely symbolic that Bach in 1722, I think it is, or 1725, I forget the exact date, uh, the Well-Tempered Clavier is written, I think it's 1722. Um, and the Well, and why did he choose this title, Well-Tempered? Well, most people think, oh, it has to do with the tuning technique. Yeah, first of all, I mean, Werkmeister did have a tuning technique called Well-Tempered, but that's not what he was doing. And what he was doing was he was taking the just intonation or the enharmonic tuning that I, that's what I call it, for a choir, the purity of intervals that you're free from the fixed pitch keyboard, which has to be tuned ahead of time to make sense in a sense, uh, where you're free of that because the choir can intone slightly different fifths, wider and so on, and move the pitches enharmonically in tonal context. So just to make my story short, uh, just at that time, around 1720 or so, uh, abstract music really takes shape, meaning instrumental music is going to be a new domain in, in our study and what composers are writing. Uh, and wouldn't you know it, uh, what they adopt and what Bach does almost as the first truly abstract piece, which is the Well-Tempered Clavier, meaning it isn't dances, it's just music to listen to on its own. And he entitles it Well-Tempered because he's taking from the, con the rich tradition of vocal writing um, and taking the enharmonic power of a pitch uh, and treating it in tonal context and making you realize that what you, the listener, is doing at a keyboard is bending the pitch and I always do it if you don't mind. Uh, here is the famous E of the well-tempered of the of C major well-tempered. My piano is not in tune, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm just going to show you that these are the chords that he uses. He has this. He has this. And he has this in three consecutive measures in the middle of the piece. Well, listen to the E and how it changes. so low. In fact, Debussy would bring it down. Uh, and Bach doesn't do, he doesn't make it resolve as a leading tone because he wants you to hear the enharmonic shift, which, by the way, a choir would intone. Right. It would sing me, me, me. It's lower. Uh, and you do that normally and naturally as a choral conductor and a, and a singer, if you're, if you're somewhat trained uh, choir, you're going to tune these things. And Bach took it into the instrumental world. So what was new or what happened? Well, instrumental music adopted some of the great glories of, isn't it wonderful to think that there is no such thing as an, of an E? There is no such thing as an E. 
You know, perfect pitch, you can go to hell as far as I'm concerned, because there is no fixed E. Uh, only just an E has a, some, I guess, frequency level. E will have an infinite quality and color based on harmonic context. And that is the inheritance of choral music into the, to the instrumental world. Well, that makes me think, well, man, there's so many insane thoughts that I've been having that have been mind-blowing because, you know, I always ask myself, because I, I catch myself all the time going off into all these cool theories. And then when I talk to some colleagues, they're like, okay. <laughs> Do you not get this? It's so cool. But it, it to put it in a practical standpoint of when, when, whether you're at the keyboard or not, when you're, if you're singing acapella or you're trying to approach this, this music, you can, I think that there's really great power in just talking that there's nothing new and teaching to that basic interval, whether you're teaching in music theory class, a choral class, instrumental class, private lessons or whatever, in a performance setting, you can say, Hey, look, this interval has to, you got to, really train your ear to hear what this interval is supposed to be like because it's going to be in tune that way so let's let's train ourselves to feel those intervals and then what is consonant one is dissonance how are you going to shape those how are you going to and you can approach any piece of music from those foundational building blocks absolutely uh, and, well, and that's and that makes it work whatever time period i think absolutely well, Philip did a did me a big favor by turning my head upside down uh, the first summer that I spent studying with him because uh, when I was an undergrad, um, the the default is that they teach you harmony, which is essentially a series of labels and procedures, and the goal of harmony is the correct naming of things like a garden of eden exercise you're walking around like well that's an emu and that's a tree and you want to make sure everything has the right name and uh i will say that i got a's in harmony i was a good student um and i got obsessed about the naming of things but then when i spent the summer studying with philip in paris uh, we didn't do any naming of things, actually, and, and it stripped everything down to counterpoint. And here's the thing is when I was an undergrad, counterpoint was offered. Yes, there was 16th century counterpoint and 18th century counterpoint. These are electives so that if you, I don't know, want to uh, understand Palestrina or sound like him, go go do that thing. But but. The experience I had was completely different, and it really did turn my ears upside down because instead of obsessing about nomenclature, what we did was systematically, uh, rigorously stress out over the motion of pitches relative to each other, starting with two lines in whole notes, so-called per species, where you obsess at this kind of abstract level about consonants. And I, the thing that was interesting to me is that if you teach harmony first from a piano that presupposes this kind of equal temperament thing and it's all um, you know mechanics and procedures and voice leading and blah 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 what you're not doing is hearing the difference of those ease yeah the, one, one, the fact that one leans achingly down based on function and context and line and all these kinds of things and another one is bright and uh, high and these kinds of things and i didn't hear that until i spent hours and hours and hours and hours doing counterpoint and it was news to me that counterpoint should precede the learning of harmony and in fact that harmony uh is a byproduct of counterpoint yes absolutely Harmony is just four contrapuntal lines that are moving together. <laughs> yeah. And I love, well, I think it's super interesting to me because my, my AP theory students are like, well, why do we have these rules? I was like, okay, they're not rules. It, this is an aesthetic. Like we're learning an aesthetic, right? So, so we've, we're analyzing of what certain composers did to sound like them. We're trying to follow like them. So then we've created these rules. Now, 
you can't use dissonance like this. You have to use consonants like this and all these things. And they're like, why is that? And I think to, to have started the class like that, instead of, you know, going through the scales and the key signatures first and the way the, the new AP theory book puts it, it puts it in a, in a weird spot. I agree. And I think that if you, if you begin with this concept of what is consonants, what even is that? What even is then dissonance? You can start to help them see why certain things function a certain way and then how that slowly evolves into harmony, like what Andrew was saying, without having to have them work their heads backwards. I think it's well, really complicated. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, the, the AP history, uh, AP theory or whatever music uh, classes, unfortunately, right. I mean, they dissect music into these studies like harmony and counterpoint as separate entities when they're not. I mean, I think, first of all, the through line through all of music has been the voice singing. Everything is sung. And if you have intervals, if you have students, two students sing intervals, just sing them and hear the live force of a suspension, a two, three suspension and have them do it. Uh, they learn about two, three suspensions like that. They understand what the need of which pitch has to move and which pitch wants to move. You know, I always say, why is it that a two, three suspension, if you hear it, you know, and the beauty of that type of thing when we hear, and it's obviously better when you sing, by the way. It's obviously better. For, for pedagogical reasons, all of this should be sung which is why at my summer program, I have a choir. I mean, that's the linchpin. It's sort of the fulcrum of our program where everybody sings and we sing the counterpoint, we sing the harmony and we sing works and we sing, yeah. you know, contemporary works and so on. But it's, but it's really the place where the, the Petri dish of, of training. So if you ask people to sing a two, three suspension, you just get two kids to do here. You sing do and you sing me. And now the me goes down to Ray and you hold the dough. Now you ask them, what would be the next thing you'd want to hear? Just ask them that. And who's going to move? Well, how come it, this we don't like? Right? The ray doesn't go to the dough. Uh, the ray holds and the dough goes down. Well, that's a, that's a learning experience. That's what I call the, the grammar of music. Uh, the problem that you know, what, what uh, Andrew was talking about, when you name chords, that's like saying, well, you know, that's, a, that's an adjective and that's a noun and so on. But actually, you know, the tonal language is an evolution from you know, way back over the span of history of music uh, from a language. It's a language. So what you should be studying is the grammar of music. And the yeah. grammar of music has to do with consonants and dissonance and how those things will move and so on. That is a very visceral thing. But number one, yes, I mean, I think all theory, so-called theory, should be experiential. It should be sung. Uh, you don't need a professional choir to do this. You just need a bunch of students to sing together. Uh, of course, with COVID, you know, hopefully we'll get back. But when we when we do, uh, you sing intervals, it becomes a live force. And then you hear the beauty of that second and how tense that second is. And, you know, you don't need any further description of that interval. And right. let's not also forget that we went historically from uh, entirely uh, mentor training, meaning a, a teacher singer would sing the chant to a fellow uh, or young monk, uh, an aspiring monk, uh, and you would teach the chant. Now it goes like this. No, no, no. It goes, you know, and then there were these desperate attempts as people were starting to want to create and expand on this to notate. And then when you notated, you notated one line. I mean, there were no scores. Not, you know, I mean, Palestrina didn't know about a score. Uh, so they were just thinking this way. That's why I said multiple monophonics actually last a long time, because that's how they wrote. They wrote one line, and then they had loose rules uh, to connect the two lines with regard to dissonance and consonants and how it sounded in the ear. Uh, and then when music then got a score, then you can start entertaining the, quote, rules of harmony. Uh, 
which again are just nothing more than uh, the same issues of visceral understanding of consonants and dissonance, which can be trained by the by singing. And I think that as you sing it, sorry, Andrew, I'll just be quick. I think even when you just played that example, I was like, yeah, that's why contrary motion is so satisfying. And, you know, to quote Alfred Mann, the most desirable or whatever, you know, that, that sort of, because you can feel you're coming to that resting place from different directions. Different directions. There's something viscerally pleasing about singing that together. And when you feel it, I think that's super fascinating. Mm -hmm. playing it more or whatever. I also think it's very interesting that culturally so-called Western music, which I guess is European music, at least for a long period of time, which became the notated art form in music much more than other cultures. Uh, it's the dealing with dissonance that is pretty much unique in, in that particular cultural world. We loved to deal with dissonance and deal with it in relation to consonants. Because you hear, and again, I'm not making value judgments, but you hear Chinese pentatonic music or Japanese pentatonic music. Well, it actually has no dissonance in it, right? I mean, the pentatonic is, om is omitting the one thing that the West has, which is the tritone. Yeah. You know, yeah. And wow. the tritone with its tendencies are the great glory of the of sort of so-called Western music uh, because it deals with the dissonance and where that dissonance should go to quote resolve. Uh, and you think of, you know, Af those beautiful African choir sounds. It's always tertian, very beautiful tertian music, but v almost none to my knowledge. And I'm not a I'm not an ethnomusicologist, so I'm not going to make the claim, but I doubt that there's much dissonance in that music. And the same for Indian raga music. It's uh, it's a drone. Uh, you have modes. It's a different perspective. Uh, and I think that the glory of early music was the dealing with dissonance and how to bring dissonance into the consonant world. Yeah. Wow. And I, I've, I, I went on tour to, uh, to Ghana, Africa with my choir at BYU-Idaho, and we sang some traditional Af uh, Ghanaian hymns and other things there's clear british influence because of the the territorial thing but but even still even some of their early like folk tunes you know these planing tertian chords and yeah you're you're absolutely right we didn't sing anything there was like a uh british sized hymn like version of one of them with one suspension i think but, <laughs> but other than that it was yeah these these triads in parallel motion the whole time and there's something beautiful to that in its own right, but it, yeah. that's why that's why maybe it's not viewed as again like I'm also not an ethnomusicologist, but something that would you would call as being extremely complex or anything like that. Andrew, right, well, complete. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, as I say, it's not a value judgment. I just think that right. Western music evolved as the dealing with dissonance, you know, it could be a deeply religious issue, uh, too. I mean, if a one of faith, you know, I mean, but that's because I think different perspectives and different cultures have very different views on the role of the human being in the greater scheme of life. Uh, and in the West, I think, yeah, there is something we call sin and we call it uh, you know, you got to deal with it and, and, and do all sorts of things. And whether you're biblical or not biblical, music reflects a lot of the struggles. Uh, uh, Western music reflects the struggles that I think are very much part of the Western, not to say religious, but spiritual world. Right. And the Judeo-Christian Greek philosophies that right. yeah. tradition. I My favorite interval to talk about with regard to how so social and psychological it is, is the fourth, because the interval of the fourth changes its codification among humans from being a pure consonance to being an imperfect consonance, to be an outright dissonance, <laughs> to then sort of coming back to being a, you know, mitigated consonance or whatever. Uh, and you know, when you think of early music, and I mean very early music, let's say, again, early polyphony, and uh, where you get to a fourth, and the resolutions are to the fifth. 
Now, if I can just speed read to uh, or speed to the uh, Age of Enlightenment, the fourth resolves to the third as a four-three suspension. Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. I think it's the only interval that actually switches its direction to resolve yeah. from early periods when it resolved to the greatest purity of fifth, right? And in the time of, let's say, the Enlightenment, it resolves to the third. So that was interesting, and it made me think, well, is that possible that, you know, we reconfigured something and completely changed our view of a pitch or of an interval and where it should go? And then it occurred to me that actually nothing, even there, nothing changed. Uh, when the fourth went to the fifth, uh, it, was, it was in, a, again, a church or a basilica. It was in a choir, very intoned, very, very pure fifth. And what do you hear when you hear a very well-tuned fifth in a resonant room? The third. Yes, you hear. Yeah. You yeah. hear the, the overtone, the overtone. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then in the age of enlightenment, you know, again, these are somewhat simplistic, you know, over overstatements, but simplify, oversimplified statements. But um, in the age of enlightenment, a lot of music went to, the chamber or, you know, the, the gentlemen's clubs in it. That's not the right word. The men's <laughs> clubs in the... It's the same, right? <laughs> right. Uh, the uh, clubs in, uh, in Venice and so on where, you know, the men would go and they would sing madrigals. And what, what acoustic space were those? Well, you know, they were dry, right? They were wooden with lots of tapestries and so on. And so you couldn't hear the overtone quite as well. So the composers physically resolved the interval to the third. There's another issue that I think is really deeply symbolic. In the Age of Enlightenment, it is the time when humans felt much more in control of, of the world and felt that rationality and so on, less spirituality, more rational, uh, could explain everything. So the human resolves the fourth to the third. But in the much more faith time of early music, when it's sung in basilicas, it was God that su supplied that resolution for you because you heard it above you resonating in the hall as a miracle because yeah. it is a miracle. Yeah. So that uh, it just turned out to be very spiritual. Uh <laughs> I feel great about it. So, Phil, if you're a good sport to be... Um you know, tag teams like this. Um, as we wrap up, I, I just wonder, is there a, a piece of early music that you find yourself turning back to for inspiration, something that's been instructive that we could add to our lists? Well, I mean, I'm not going to be that original. Thomas Tallis, I mean, I just absolutely, you know, the music is such, such, I mean, again, it's a visceral thing. There's such power to the, to the, just these, columns of sound and how they move it's just yeah it makes me moved all the time i mean if there's a composer that i go to for for that it's thomas dallas wow not that original but <laughs> no, that, but it shows that you know sometimes like there's a reason why it shows that there is a reason why his music is so timeless well, and after, after an endorsement like that, his um, royalty statement for streaming is going to get a real bump from our listeners. And yeah. uh, Absolutely. things will end well for Mr. Talos. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Well, again, th Philip, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're still busy and got a call coming up and, and uh, things. This, is, this has been really great. So oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure and it's nice to meet you. Yeah, uh, you do. Yeah. <laughs> And hopefully uh, we can do this again in the future. Yeah, absolutely, I'd love to. Okay. Wow. <laughs> My mind is literally blown. I think you say that in every podcast. Is that true? Yeah, it is, though, because I... So, okay, this is why. 
So I came from really what I would call quote unquote traditional music theory and music training. Like I took piano when I was young. Then I went to high school, took choir. Then I was like, well, music theory is cool. It took music theory. I basically used that as a way to write better rock and roll songs. So it was just very, what chords should we use? What four chords should we use in this song? What four chords should we use in this song? And and then I got in, dabbled into composing it at BYU-Idaho, but it was still very much vertically based and just traditional, like, uh, common practice and later mindset of theory. And so to think about it, to kind well, of deconstruct... Kind of it's like a German obsession, because, you know, right. it's a very, that's what we've inherited from Germans, which is this idea that things can be reduced into harmonic bricks and you go from one brick to the next brick to the next yeah we build things out of bricks and it all adds up you know it's like you look at the vertical structure and you look at the thirds and stack them up and say oh yes we have this thing right here this is a thing and then there's the next thing and it's yeah yeah you're very german yeah nice das ist wunderbar ja ah. <laughs> but i but i like when you say that, that's literally how I would I would spell chords in choir, and the kids next to me. I mean, I, I was one of four freshmen in the BYU Idaho Collegiate Singers, out of fifty singers, and the kid next to me had just had his first child, and I was sitting over here just like nerding out about the music, spelling chords, and he's singing with this really amazing voice, and I had this little kid voice still, but I was like, well, this chord goes to this, and then this. He goes, what? How do you spell chords that fast? It's amazing. But but looking back, it's just like it was exactly what you said, brick, then then tonal brick, then chordal brick, and then harmonic brick. And so, so to think about it, to deconstruct all of that and then to come back at it with this really fundamental, this is consonance, this is dissonance, this is line, and this is how then that's primary and then they line up occasionally well they line up all the time but how do they line up when they line up these things create the vertical bricks and you know i don't know it's just it, now, you're, now you're waxing french you yeah i mean i'm not saying that you're getting waxed that's different but <laughs> that is you're, you're i would never i would be uh, crying the idea, the, the idea that harmony is a byproduct of counterpoint yeah that's i mean that's uh now you're now you're talking wc and uh, yeah i think that's the i mean that's really the insight that i got from philip because i i think a lot of people that study with that have studied with him at juilliard or in the paris summer program um that those are the big takeaways it what he's doing and for a lot of people i think is um undoing or loosening or demilitarizing the yeah teaching of theory and saying yeah fine it, it doesn't hurt to attach names to things right nothing wrong with that but that comes downstream Let, let's let's move upstream to these foundational elusive aesthetic issues that are honestly kind of hard to like talk about and slap labels on what you really need is time with a pencil and a yeah. lot of push-ups with your inner ear yeah you know I mean, it's like there's just you, either you do counterpoint exercises and you internalize this appreciation for the for how you choreograph sound or or you don't have or you don't have that and all you can do is just talk about like wow this is the tonic and it's moving to the subdominant and then the subdominant moves to the dominant and yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah. right and it would be like to me the, the the equivalent would be like trying to teach a child uh language structure before they can really understand what individual words mean on their own you're like trying to say well this is the verb and then this is the adjective and then this is the independent clause and they're still trying to figure out 
like what does the word appreciate mean like, mm-hmm. you, you know and then how do you put it you know? and that's the way i view it and so yeah like when he talked about that nothing's new i was like that concept demilitarizes everything because then you're still going back to the swiss augmented six chord being a phrygian figure and a lydian figure combine then that that just tells me that yeah we are re- just reconstructing the pattern of half steps whole steps consonants dissonance well i had this, this snarky harmony teacher at berkeley when i was doing my masters at boston conservatory at berkeley and i mm-hmm. was sort of foraging on both sides of the the institution yeah that was teaching jazz reharmonization um whoa which is a a, a, a wonderful sort of like concept of, for a class but he just you know he just kind of like would glance at the class every so often and say ah you can do anything with good voice leading you know and right. it was it was kind of interesting because when it when you actually look at the discipline of it it it's a it's confirming what philip was saying which is basically there's counterpoint and you can do anything with good counterpoint. Yeah. And you know, in the in the fifteen hundreds, doing anything with good counterpoint had a certain right. sound to it. Right. There right. Were things that sounded acceptable. Uh, you know, we had there was a there was a stylistic vernacular of consonants and dissonance that was kind of yeah. The, it was the common practice of that moment. And then that vernacular changes over time and we admit all of you know over time we admit all of the members of the harmonic series right yeah into the uh, like stable of of allowed players and all this kind of stuff but the but that idea is you can do anything with good voice leading with good counterpoint you can do anything yeah and then, and then then it's really a question of what are the what's the dimension of the playing field um, yeah in terms of who gets to play and when and yeah that changes over time but the but the appreciation for the sound of it still comes from the same discipline like like philip was saying yeah oh man yeah so much to think about um my music theory kids are gonna have no idea what the heck happened to them after they listen to this so <laughs> so i'm really excited to to hey, show but listen, them but I mean, you're 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 teaching your music theory kids counterpoint yes indeed they have a leg up on whatever it was that i got (laughs) well last quick story to end it the one of my students came up to me and it's like we're doing we're doing like common practice part writing now and they're like i understand counterpoint way better now and this is way like easier because we did counterpoint it's like Thank you. Well, yeah, yeah, because you, you, I can uh, wash Philip, my hands Philip and walk away. Say, you know, Philip would say that what you know what he learned from Boulanger in her her school was that harmony, properly understood, is simply doubling and spacing. It's the art of doubling and spacing. Yeah. Common practice voice leading is a particular approach to doubling and spacing. And spacing. Yeah. But it's all built into the sense of line. In fact, it's kind of like a, a litany of rules that are supposed to keep you honest to writing solid, independent lines. You right. get that because it falls into this kind of like mechanical verticality in the way that we think and teach. And we, we get obsessed about these arbitrary, um, you know, uh, nomenclature. These yeah, and like labels and things. Right, uh, but good voice leading. Is you can do anything. Good voice. Yeah, you can do anything. It's amazing. Guys, <laughs> the limit with good <laughs> voice leading. Yeah. You could be a salesman selling creepy watches out of your trench coat. Hey, <laughs> what do you use that voice? <laughs> Just two for one at counterpoint dot com. <laughs> you want to buy a tritone? <laughs> Oh man. Okay. Well, early Palestrina model. Gonna <laughs> blow your mind. 
You're like, nah, it's too stiff for me. <laughs> oh, man. It's early slash late. I can't tell. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, any last words? That was fun. Yeah. Andrew's special idea. Let's do more of it. Yeah. Okay. Well, in the next episode coming soon next month. This is fantastic. I have no, uh, there's no like cool outro, so. You're fantastic, Cameron. <laughs> oh, let's thanks, chant, shucks. Let's just chant outro. 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 <laughs> and that's literally how we end it. <laughs> See you next time on, on the Andrew special.